Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of On The Mix. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I thought I would talk to you guys about the story of the Lost Beatles album. Now, if you guys don't know, I am a massive Beatles fan, and when I heard about this story last year, it really blew my mind, to be honest. I had no idea that this even happened, that this album even existed, hence the title of the Lost Beatles album. So uh, without further ado, let me get into it and tell you guys the story of the Lost Beatles album, which is entitled A Collection of Beatles Oldies. Let me just like set the mood for you guys, right? So it's August the 31st, 1966. The Beatles had just landed at Heathrow Airport and they had completed their American tour. 1966 was the year that they were totally and unequivocally done with touring they were exhausted with touring. They were so annoyed and upset that they were on stage playing to a large audience and that they couldn't even hear themselves playing because the audience would scream at them nonstop like they couldn't hear themselves play. It was too much pandemonium. And they called off touring from this point moving forward in their career. They never toured again. Brian Epstein, their manager of an extremely long time, was not happy with the fact that they were like, we're done with touring, we're not going to tour anymore. And he liked to set up all the tours and things like that. You know, he saw a lot of worth in doing his job like that. And so when the Beatles decided, no, we're not going to tour anymore, this kind of devastated Brian. Brian would actually pass away a couple of months later in September of 1966. Um, So the Beatles are now in London. They had just come off of their American tour and they were like, we're done with touring. So John takes the opportunity to fly to Spain to film his first acting role in the film How I Won the War. George went on his first solo trip to India. Paul was working on some musical things around town and Ringo, I think, was just kind of hanging out. So, you know, the Beatles were at this point kind of, uh, quote unquote, separated but they were not broken up by any stretch of the imagination. However, the media started cultivating and circulating stories that, oh, the Beatles, they have broken up and they are no more. Paul has quit the Beatles and this, that, and the third, um, which is not true. They were just spreading these false stories because they didn't see the Beatles hanging out together. So the rumors actually got so bad to the point where Brian was in a clinic um, while he was trying to recuperate from his mental and physical exhaustions. Brian had to physically drag himself out of his bed in the clinic to make a statement to the press that no, Paul was not leaving the group. The Beatles were not breaking up. Everything was copacetic. I feel so bad for Brian in this story um, as a side note. But yeah, anyway, so... The papers were even saying that Brian himself was going to be replaced by Alan Klein, which is funny because that isn't necessarily too far from what actually happened. It was a really kind of weird, dire straits situation. The press was creating this kerfuffle of, oh, the Beatles were breaking up and, you know, all the Beatles were kind of on different continents at this time and it was just like crazy pandemonium. They were like, no more touring. It was just madness. So EMI, their record label, they were like, right. What are we going to do about this situation? You know, how do we how do we bring the situation back to where it benefits us? Because at this point in time, it was the summer. And the problem with this is that they were looking towards their Christmas market, 
because during the Christmas time, that would be the time where a lot of people would buy the Beatles records because records were considered, you know, an expensive item, right? I think it still kind of is. But especially at the time where if you couldn't afford a Beatles record that year, that particular year or that point in time, they would make great Christmas presents where people would be gifted a record, right? They were trying to look ahead into the future, EMI was, and figure out what album are we going to put to the people so that it could be a Christmas record, so that it could sell during our profitable Christmas season. The Beatles, they were on a contract with EMI where they had to put out two records a year, right? So they already, you know, came out with one earlier. They were touring and then they came back. They were like, no more touring. And they weren't even recording anything. They had no new material for a new album. So they only had the one option left. And this was not something that the Beatles entertained or even wanted. But EMI's marketing manager was like, well, why don't we do a greatest hits album instead of a studio album, considering the Beatles don't have any new material to give us? And at this point in time in history in the UK, the UK was adamant about not releasing a greatest hits or a compilation album of the Beatles. That was kind of set in stone by countries like America, where there were a plethora of compilation albums by the Beatles already at this point. Um, and other such countries already had Beatles compilation albums. But the UK was like, no, 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 no. We are not doing any kind of greatest hits album. But it was the perfect time now to do one. Even though the Beatles hated this idea, they were like, how can you even consider putting out a greatest hits album? This is so stupid. They had no choice. Their hands were kind of tied. They really didn't have a choice. They were beholden to their contract and they didn't have new material to give to EMI for an album. So this is where uh, they had to go. So 16 tracks were chosen for this album and it was their greatest hits sprinkled throughout the years. The album would be available in both mono and stereo. And at this point in time, that was considered the norm. Whereas back in the early days in 1962, 63, when they were first starting out, their albums were only recorded in mono because that was the popular way that you would listen to an album. But when stereo was becoming ever popular um, and record players were now starting to become equipped to handle stereo records and like having all these attachments for stereo playback, now the Beatles were, was really the first band, in my humble opinion, to start the process of making stereo albums as well as mono albums. The problem that this would have, though, was pretty bad because as you can imagine, especially in the 60s, when you have a mono track, a mono song, and you try to, to make it into a stereo song, it's going to sound absolutely horrible. And of course, like I mentioned, the problem with this was that all of the Beatles work the early work was recorded in mono, so they had to go into the studio and they had to take some of these mono tracks and make them stereo. Some of the tracks had already been recorded in stereo for different compilation albums that were released to other countries, so they had those, so that was fine. But there were only a couple that they had that they needed to work on in the studio to make them stereo. George Martin would have his work cut out for him, let me tell you. He thought that this would be easy, breezy, beautiful cover girl, but this was not the case. They had about four days, roughly, in the studio to take some of these tracks and make them stereo. 
during their first sessions, they were focusing on paperback writer, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and She Loves You. So George Martin spent two days in the studio making the mixes for paperback writer, and I Want to Hold Your Hand. Things were going seemingly okay. On day three, George Martin, for some reason, wasn't there, and Jeff Emmerich was the only one left to do the monumental task of continuing the stereo mixes alone. As you can imagine, this probably didn't go swimmingly. He went to work on She Loves You. Strangely enough, the original recording for She Loves You, the twin tapes, was scrapped by EMI in 1963. They thought for some reason, oh, we don't need this. We'll never need this in the future. So they just threw it in the bin. Jeff Emmerich needed that to make a proper sounding stereo mix. So he was left to his own devices. He had to create a mock stereo mix from the mono tape, which, again, as you can imagine, sounds horrendous. And this is going to go so badly, by the way. It just seems like the more it goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And it's just an an ever-evolving nightmare situation. So back in the 60s, the general process for creating a stereo version of a song from a mono tape was mostly just equalization for the most part. Again, they would have separate channels. So the high frequencies of the song were boosted and fed through the left channel, and then the low frequencies were fed through the right channel. This sounded like absolute hot garbage. It sounded horrible. And again, considering a lot of these old vintage record players that people had in their homes were only equipped for mono, stereo versions of record players or stereo attachments were expensive, right? So people didn't really have like the means necessary to have like a proper hi-fi stereo system in their house. It's not like it is today. <laughs> it's just uh, ugh, horrible. So getting back to it, on the fourth and final day in the studio mixing songs in stereo, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich were not there. They were like, right, my work here is done. Adios, see you never. EMI's balancing engineer Peter Brown was there instead with his assistant, and they worked on this track called Bad Boy. Now, this was already released in the U.S. Like I said, this was one of the tracks that was already released on a U.S. compilation album. But again, because the U.K. never at this point in time wanted to release a compilation album, it was never released as a single in the U.K. So this was the first time that it would be released in the U.K. So a lot was writing on this, right? There was a miscommunication on the phone where EMI and Abbey Road were on the phone. And Abbey Road was like, So the track that you guys are going to do is called Bad Boy and have fun with that. EMI's like, cool, did you say this boy? Abby Road was like, no, we said Bad Boy. And EMI was like, oops, we did this boy instead. (laughs) Oops. Unfortunately, they misheard what Abby Road said on the phone and they mixed a version of this boy instead of Bad Boy, which they were supposed to do. And... Once they realized their oopsie, it was too late. They couldn't do anything about it. So they had to take the Bad Boy track that was already released on the U.S. compilation for this album instead. Whatever. It doesn't seem like maybe the end of the world, but I mean, that wasn't going to set them up for the greatest of achievements already. So the last songs to be remixed into stereo were Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out, which went seemingly okay. The only two tracks on the album that were never also released as singles in the UK were Yesterday and Michelle. Essentially, Paul did not want Yesterday to be released as a single because he thought it wasn't good enough to be a single and he thought that it was so different from anything else that they had ever done that he thought it wouldn't 
be good as a single. So this was the first time that Yesterday in the UK was going to be released as a single. And again, a lot was writing on this to be good, right? Let me tell you what happens there. First, let me just talk to you about the cover artwork because that also uh, plays into it a little bit. So for those of you that have never seen this album before, you don't know what the album cover looks like. Let me kind of try to verbally describe to you what it looks like. Essentially, this is almost like a 60s psychedelic fever dream where there's this beetle-like character that's kind of lounging on the front cover and he's wearing this like London High Street suit. Uh, and then there's other illustrations and pictures of the Beatles surrounding this figure in the middle. It's very colorful, vibrant. It's nothing like they've ever done before, but it's all done by this one man who is named Brian Christian. He was like kind of an up and coming artist and Brian Epstein commissioned him to do this. So that's what was done there. One could suggest, however, that the Beatles were trying to sabotage this album's success by not allowing the use of their faces on the front cover. And this was major because the Beatles have always presented their image, their picture, their faces on the cover of all of their singles and all of their studio albums because the studio, their recording label, wanted their faces on the album covers to sell more records. This is the first time where the Beatles' faces would not be shown on the front cover. At this point in time, if you can imagine the Revolver album artwork that was black and white, that had the illustrations of them coupled with pictures of them, it was very like psychedelic, but in a different way because it was done in black and white. Well, this was the opposite. And Brian Christian took direct inspiration from the Revolver album cover for this cover instead. It's really artistically interesting visually to look at, but it is quite different, so that's the only thing there. The Beatles themselves do appear on the back cover only as a picture of them where they were on tour in Japan and they were in their hotel room. It kind of was basically like a candid shot. Apparently, this is so fascinating, apparently that picture of the Beatles was accidentally printed backwards by mistake, and the only way that people knew this was because Japanese fans noticed that the script that was on Paul's kimono that he was wearing in this picture was written backwards. So in Japan, when they released this compilation album, they flipped the image back around so that it was the right way around. I just thought, that's so funny. Like, how would they know that it was printed backwards? That's really funny. Um, so that's essentially the album artwork, and that's essentially how they created the album and how they produced the stereo mixes for this album. So let's dive into how this album was actually received in the aftermath of this. So the album was released on December 10th, 1966, just in time for the Christmas sale. I think EMI really wanted to make sure that when they released this album that they hoped and prayed that this would stop all the Beatles rumors that they were breaking up, right? Well, this did nothing to quell the rumors because people were thinking, why are they releasing a compilation album? This doesn't make any sense. This is not like the Beatles. What's happening here? This only, I think, made the rumors worse. And the Beatles were not seen promoting the album or doing anything else with the album. So that didn't help either. But what the fans didn't know was that the Beatles, by this time in December, were in the studio laying down the groundwork for Sgt. Pepper's. The thing about compilation albums, especially in the U.S., the U.S. didn't want this album for a long time because the U.S. specifically only would release greatest hits albums for bands that were already done. 
and there was nothing more from the band and they were breaking up and they just wanted to squeeze every last bit of revenue from the band before they left into obscurity. So the U.S. was like, the Beatles aren't done. Like, why do we need another compilation album like from the U.K.? Weirdly enough, this actually became one of the best British imports in the U.S. at this time in terms of a record at this time. For some reason in the U.S. it actually did okay, and in other countries it actually did pretty well, considering the countries at this time that were heavily fed under uh, communism and communist regime, where the Beatles music was prohibited from people listening to them. This actually did extremely well in those countries. In the U.K., however, it fucking flopped. <laughs> like, it absolutely bombed. It did not good at all. It was absolutely horrible. So the albums at the time that were dominating the charts were The Sound of Music, which was huge, okay? Like it or love it, if you hate musicals or like musicals or whatever, The Sound of Music was absolutely massive and the soundtrack was just as massive. So that was dominating the chart. And The Monkees had an album at the time as well. That was dominating the charts. But this Beatles compilation album didn't even come anywhere close. It landed at number seven on the album chart, which maybe you would think, well, that's not too bad. But for a Beatles album, that's really bad because every single Beatles album either went number one or extremely close to number one. And for a Beatles album to land at number seven is really bad. This album was even outdone by two other compilation albums by their direct competition, one from the Rolling Stones and one from the Beach Boys. I mean, this one just flopped. It just was an absolute fail. It didn't do well. The Beatles themselves were like, we are not touching this within a 10-foot pole. We are not talking about this. The critics themselves didn't like this album either, saying that the Beatles and EMI were commercial sellouts. How dare you release a compilation album of the Beatles? What are you, insane? Well, maybe they had to be insane to release a compilation album because the UK was steadfast and not doing one before, but now that they had no other choice, they were like, well, maybe people will like let it fly. No, 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 no. This did horribly. So like I mentioned, other countries like the US, at first they didn't want it, but then it became a massive import and then it became really well, you know, plus the music fans in the US where the Beatles were concerned were already used to compilation albums. So they were like, whatever, this is just like everyday regularity for me. This is no problem. And then in other countries, specifically where it was under communist regime, they did really well over there with this album um, because this was the first album that those people could actually finally listen to the Beatles for the first time in some instances, and it meant a lot to them. Um, but in their home country of the UK, Everyone wanted to bury this album. They didn't want to remember this album. They wanted to totally make sure this album was not remembered in any kind of way. As time went on and the Beatles broke up, a lot of compilation albums and greatest hits albums were already on the market. And so the need for this album to be either remastered or brought back was less and less. So the album faded away into obscurity where it was pushed aside for other compilation albums, such as like the Blue and Red album, the Past Masters, etc, etc. Like the Beatles have a million and one compilation albums and then their greatest hits, the, the One album, like come on. So those were pushed ahead and then this album, the Oldies album, was left uh, to obscurity. And the thing about this, seemingly enough, this doesn't even really fare that well for record collectors, mostly because like it wasn't really a rare thing. 
it didn't really do that well and the album sounds pretty trash. So most vinyl collectors now and avid record collectors don't really touch this album. It doesn't do that well and it's not really expensive. I mean, I guess if you want it because you're maybe a starting out vinyl collector on a budget and maybe you want to go for this album, go for it. You will not find a mint version of this album. You'll find probably really trashy ones. But again, I think that's where some of the fun comes from collecting vinyl, right? At least in my opinion. So yeah, I mean, listen, you know, EMI really tried it with this one. They were like, listen, we need a Beatles album for the Christmas time. The Beatles aren't giving us any new material. So EMI was so hard pressed. <laughs> EMI was like, we are not having our best selling band on our label do this to us. So we are going to give the fans a compilation album for Christmas time so we can make some more money. Well, it backfired in their absolute faces. And the Beatles as well were like, we are just forgetting that this ever happened. We are moving on swiftly. And yeah, that in a nutshell is the story of the Lost Beatles album. And obviously it's lost because it faded away into obscurity and people don't know that this album even existed because I think it's utterly fascinating. Like there's a Beatles album out there that's lost and people don't know about it. It's like a treasure map. It's like you have the map to the treasure of the Lost Beatles album and you're like trying to find it. Well, I personally haven't looked on eBay or Discogs, but I imagine it's on there somewhere for not that much money. Because again, this album was not the greatest in terms of sound quality and it was never remastered. So it sounds like it did in 1966. And that's the thing where all of the other Beatle albums were remastered and remixed to be updated for the hi-fi systems and the record players and the digital music scene that is today. So the Beatles are now in the modern age, whereas this album is the only one that didn't get the upgrade. So it's going to sound really bad. <laughs> so if you want to crack at trying to find a copy of it, go for it. I'm sure it's not that much money. But thank you guys for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed and that you learned something today that you hadn't known about before. I will see you guys next Wednesday with another episode of On The Mix. Talk to you guys later. Bye, guys. Bye.